Good morning to each of you, and greetings in Jesus' name. The one that demonstrated that love so amazing. Am I willing to give him my life and my all? Am I giving him that? Trust we're here this morning to demonstrate that that is our desire. To begin with this morning, I would like you to imagine an illustration. I didn't bring one along, but we have minds and imaginations, and I'm going to ask you to imagine with me a tree. I like trees. I notice trees more than I used to, but a sycamore tree. Got that patchy white bark, usually a fairly open canopy, often big trees. This one maybe two feet across, 50 feet tall, strong and straight, a healthy tree. Usually these grow by a river, water, wet places, but they can grow different places. But up the, up the way, maybe up the stream, the river, a few hundred yards, there's another sycamore tree. And this one's even bigger. It's towering up into the sky. And the trunk is huge, so much that if you would cut it down, only your feet would hang off the edge. It too is fairly straight, but with a few more of the gnarly limbs as they are wont to get. But if you could climb this tree, you would see a small hole about the size of your fist in one of the bumps on the trunk. Maybe about halfway up, not quite that high. What do these trees have in common? Well, they're both sycamores. They're both big trees to some degree. They both appear healthy. What makes them different? The difference that I see or I'm thinking of is that little clue of that hole in that bump, that knot up the side. That second tree is hollow. It is dying. And sooner or later, sooner rather than later, it will succumb to the elements and come crashing down. There's a tree lying in dad's yard that we had brought up from the river that the neighbors had cut down because it was in the way. And I think I wasn't there for the cutting down, but they it was this big tree. It's five feet across the base. And they anticipated a huge chainsaw necessary to cut this tree down. And I got down there and started cutting and, and realized that there was only about 10 inches of 
wood around the outside. And when it's on the ground, there's a hole. And that tree you can basically crawl through. Now, what does that have to do with communion? Well, that demonstrates, let's back up a little bit. I came across a, an illustration of ordinances. What are the ordinances? And an ordinance, a very simple definition, is a tangible demonstration or expression of a physical, uh, not a physical, a physical demonstration of a spiritual reality. And as a church, we recognize, I believe, seven of these ceremonies or practices that we call ordinances, and they point to spiritual realities. And I saw a diagram that was used to illustrate, and it it was a blessing to me as I thought about this. The, The illustration was that of a tree. A cross-section of a tree. The center, the heart, the main body of the tree represents the true spiritual dimension that each of us as believers experience. Each tree has bark. The bark of a tree is not alive as much as the heart. It's fairly much of a dead part, and yet it protects the tree. It guards. The tree may be dying with its bark on, but if it's missing its bark, we know it's dead or will die. And the bark illustrates the ordinances. The outside part that we do that gives a, a window into the truth that is inside. The spiritual truths, the first perhaps that we experience in our Christian life is that of surrender. Surrender to God, to Christ, of our own will. And baptism is a ordinance that demonstrates that truth. We experience the atonement of Christ as we exercise faith in his shed blood. And then we partake of communion, showing that we accept that, we partake of that atonement. We experience union with Christ, and that is expressed and demonstrated in the marriage, the ordinance of marriage, symbolizing union with Christ. Brotherly love as a body, demonstrated in the holy kiss. Humility and also brotherly assistance in the feet washing. The recognition, acceptance, and living in the divine order. And that is demonstrated in the headship veiling. And spiritual healing in anointing with oil. The true life is what's inside. We do these things as an expression commanded by God. But I have a question for you, and that is, is your tree solid or hollow? And as we partake of communion, 
we are giving testimony to what's inside. And I, I just hope, pray that we can experience that in its, in its purity and in its truth this morning. You know, we hold communion as a very sacred ceremony. A very revered and special ordinance. Maybe in part because of the importance that was placed on the seriousness of keeping the Passover, which foreshadowed the communion as we know it. In Numbers 9, the Lord spake unto Moses, and in verses 9 to 13, it says, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a man of you or of your posterity shall be unclean or by reason of a dead body, or be in a journey afar off, yet he shall keep the Passover. And I don't know if I realize that they were still commanded to keep the Passover, even though they weren't able to in the way that they should at home. But it says in verse 11, The fourteenth day of the second month at even shall they keep it and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning nor break any bone of it according to all the ordinance of the Passover, they shall keep it. But the man that is clean and not in a journey and forbeareth to keep the Passover, even the same soul shall be cut off from among his people because he brought not the offering of the Lord in his appointed season. That man shall bear his sin. And so it sounds like you should keep it if you're not at home, if you're unclean, but if you are at home and you are clean and you are... There you must do this. Maybe that's why we say, well, we give some, we expect people to partake if they are, if they are part of the body. And yet there is, uh, it's not that it is cut off if one is missed. But this ordinance, very important, demonstrating, typifying us again, exercising faith in demonstrating that in the shed blood of Christ. But this ordinance has caused a lot of controversy in Christendom throughout the centuries. You know, how we view and participate in communion is based on our understanding and interpretation of scriptures in a broader context. We here today... see Scripture in a way that not everyone does. We are Mennonites. That's not where we get our faith, but that is in our, our expression. And we supposedly carry on a tradition of scriptural interpretation and application from that group 500 years ago that came out from the Catholic Church a group called the Anabaptist. And there's a booklet called the Anabaptist Vision that gives a thorough yet very concise description of, of that early and developing Anabaptist belief and practice. What they held as paramount, their vision, their, their desire to, to... is how they thought it proper to implement Scripture the Anabaptist vision. Someone has condensed it down to four key points. Call it the essence of it. And I'll, I'll read those here. 
Number one is that Jesus Christ, through the Holy Scriptures, is the ultimate authority. Now you think about our world today. How many people hold that? Even in Christian circles. There's so much left up to rationale, to my interpretation of what I believe truth is. But here, Jesus Christ through the Holy Scriptures is the ultimate authority. Number two, since He is, I order my life in discipleship to Him. Number three, when others do the same, I enter into a body relationship with them called the church. Number four, the church, unique from its host culture, supernaturally demonstrates the love of Christ as it cooperates with him to build the kingdom of God in the world today. Does that sound like your vision? I'd like to read a few paragraphs from this book, if you allow me. It's thinking of of how we hold the Scripture and interpret the Scripture. First and fundamental in the Anabaptist vision was the conception of the essence of Christianity as discipleship. It was a concept which meant the transformation of the entire way of life of the individual believer and of society so that it could be fashioned after the teaching and example of Christ. The Anabaptists could not understand a Christianity which made regeneration, holiness, and love primarily a matter of intellect, of doctrinal belief, or of subjective experience, rather than one of transformation of life. They demanded an outward expression of the inner experience. Repentance must be evidenced, by newness of behavior. Brother Ellis brought that to our attention a few minutes ago. Faith evidenced. In evidence is the keynote which rings through the testimonies and challenges of the early Swift brethren. The greatest word of the Anabaptist was not faith as it was with the Reformers, but following. Following. Faith but then faith that follows. As we review the vision of the Anabaptists, it becomes clear that there are two foci in this vision, two important focuses. The first relates to the essential nature of Christianity. And Christianity primarily is, question, is Christianity primarily a matter of the reception of divine grace through sacramental or sacerdotal institution. And with that, it's referring to the Catholic belief that when you take the bread, it imparts grace to you that you are made holy, regardless of what your life really is. Is it chiefly enjoyment of the inner experience of the grace of God through faith in Christ? And that would be primarily the Protestant perspective. Or is it most of all the transformation of life through discipleship? The Anabaptists were neither institutionalists, mystics, nor pietists, 
for they laid the weight of their emphasis upon following Christ in life. To them it was unthinkable for one truly to be a Christian without creating a new life on divine principles, both for himself and for all men who commit themselves to the Christian way. The second focus relates to the church. For the Anabaptists, the church was neither an instrument of an institution, Catholicism, nor the instrument of God for the proclamation of the divine word, Lutheranism, nor a resource group for individual piety or pietism, where each operates in his own little sphere. But it was a brotherhood of love in which the fullness of the Christian life ideal is to be expressed. It goes on to say that that the Catholic and Calvinists thought they could they could uh, change the world. Everyone be in be Christian. Lutherans and, and Anabaptists were a bit more pessimistic. It says that Lutheranism said that since the Christian must live in in a world order that remains sinful, he must compromise with it as a citizen. He cannot avoid participation in the evil of the world, for instance, in making war. And for this, his only recourse is to seek forgiveness by the grace of God. Only within his private, personal experience can the Christian truly Christianize his life. The Anabaptists rejected this view completely. Since for him no compromise dare be made with evil, the Christian may in no circumstance participate in any conduct in the existing social order which is contrary to the spirit and teaching of Christ in the apostolic practice. There's a lot more here in the, in the final few paragraphs. I'll just read this yet. The Anabaptist vision was not a detailed blueprint for the reconstruction of human society, but the brethren did believe that Jesus intended that the kingdom of God should be set up in the midst of the earth, amidst of earth, here and now, and this they proposed to do forthwith. We shall not believe, they said, that the Sermon on the Mount or any other vision that he, Jesus, had is only a heavenly vision meant for, meant but to keep his followers in tension until the last great day. But we shall practice what he taught, believing that where he, he walked, we can by his grace follow in his steps. We as a body, I believe that's our vision, our desire to live lives of discipleship, coming together as a brotherhood, implementing the teachings of Christ, walking in, in purity and holiness of life. And that affects how we view this communion. I'd like to read, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Beginning of verse 23. Paul speaking. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. 
This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Command to eat the bread, symbolizing the broken body, that atonement made, and the cup, the shed blood for that atonement. Turn back a chapter to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Beginning at verse 15. I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What say I then, that the idol is anything? Or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say, that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? See here a, a warning of of the spiritual quality of all that we do. It says here that the sacrifice is not what's in question or even the inanimate object that is being worshipped, the idol, but it's the evil powers of darkness that are associated with it. And I had to think of this, we are to live in the world, but not, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And what does that not of the world mean? You know, if we think we can participate in the world's systems and values and escape unscathed or be really pleasing to God, I believe here that this scripture would indicate otherwise. Our values, who we, what we do. Has tremendous spiritual implications. Who we are when we come to the communion table, as it were, is very important. The rest of our life. I'd like to read another historic document concerning the breaking of bread. This is from the Schleidheim Confession. Concerning the breaking of bread, we who have become one and agree thus 
all those who desire to break the one bread in remembrance of the broken body of Christ, and all those who wish to drink of one drink in remembrance of that shed blood of Christ, they must beforehand be united in the one body of Christ, that is, the congregation of God, whose head is Christ, and that by baptism. For as Paul indicates, we cannot be partakers at the same time of the table of the Lord and the table of devils, nor can we at the same time partake and drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. That is, all those who have fellowship with the dead works of darkness have no part in the light. Thus all who follow the devil in the world have no part with those who have been called out of the world unto God. All those who lie in evil have no part in the good. So it shall and must be that whoever does not share the calling of the one God to one faith, to one baptism, to one spirit, to one body together with all the children of God, may not be made one loaf together with them, as must be true if one wishes truly to break bread according to the command of Christ. To us, it's not a very foreign concept. But thinking of the time in which they lived and were coming out of, and yet today, what is around us in, in, our, in, our, in the broader, I'm going to say, Christian community, that of you live your life, I live my life, it doesn't matter how I live, I have faith, the grace of God covers me. We're thankful for faith and we're thankful for grace. But it's in the context of a body, a pure body, a discipled body. I found this very interesting. A footnote says, Most ecumenical debate about the validity of sacraments focuses on either the sacramental status of the officiant, so the priest, whether he was holy or not, or the doctrinal understanding of the meaning of the emblems. Did they really confer grace, etc.? It should be pointed out that the Anabaptist understanding of close communion refers not to the sacrament, but to the participants. It is invalidated not by an unauthorized officiant or an insufficient concept of sacrament, but by the absence of real community among those present. Our attitude and perspective are standing before God as we, the participants, come together is what makes communion effective and pleasing to God in our lives. We as Anabaptists put a large emphasis on the body, the congregation, the body working together, a pure body of Christ in fellowship together. To what purpose? The fourth point of that essence was the church, unique from its host culture, supernaturally demonstrates the love of Christ as it cooperates with him to build the kingdom of God in the world today. We are here to demonstrate to the world the reality of the gospel. And as was, was there in the, when that last paragraph in the, in the booklet, we don't believe that Jesus gave us a Sermon on the Mount to hold us in tension and say it can't really be done. We believe that he said those things to be lived out. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1.
You know, we as believers, I'm gonna I'm gonna read a verse out of Philippians first here. Two verses. It says Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you. We see both aspects of our personal commitment and desire along with the grace of God that enables us to be holy. In this passage in here in Ephesians, as I read through this first two chapters numerous times, the work of God, the plan of God, the desire of God, the heart of God, the grace of God is just flowing out of this. The exaltation of Christ. And then in chapter 2, it relates to us. I'm not going to make a whole lot of comment here on chapter 1, but I'd like to read this chapter. Think of God's desire, His grace, His, His favor and His, His mercy that He has given to us through Christ. Chapter 1 of Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, and whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, 
that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. I'm going to pause there. We can try as hard as we want to live Holy lives, and we will fail if we do not accept that it is God which worketh in us. And this is an aspect that that is a growing experience as we we let go, we exercise that faith. We come to the end of ourselves and we take the power here. Do you see this? Verses 20, verses 19 and 20. The reality of those, of the truth of these verses is, is incomprehensible. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Do we believe that it took power to raise Christ from the dead? Do we believe that that was an amazing demonstration of authority over Satan? And Easter, we celebrate that. We remember that. And what he says here is that same power is what is working in us. You know, before I was converted, there were things in my life that I knew. I knew were wrong. Things I was doing. And I willed. I will stop. What do you think the success rate was? Zero. But I praise the Lord that after I was converted, I expressed faith and commitment that I then willed by God's grace and he gave me victory. And it was like, well, what changed? What really changed? I mean, I was still me, right? But I experienced a bit of this power, resurrection power. And I've continued to experience that. And yet there's times when I go back to my own self and I think, well, I need to change this. I need to do this. And if I don't realize that I can try as hard as I want in my flesh, but until I, by faith, place my life in surrender and submission to God, I will not have victory.
Moving on into chapter 2. I see here a, a little bit of a reference back. And you hath he quickened. So Christ was raised from the dead, and now it says, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's a picture that, that sums it all up. Sins, sins of the flesh, the physical things that we do, that we, that we sin against God. If I hit someone, that's a sin of the flesh, whereas if I think an evil thought against them, that's a, that's a, a sin of the mind. And here it says, the desires of the flesh and of the mind, both what we think and what we do. We lived, we had our conversation, our way of life in that. But God, verse 4, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath, he quickened, us, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. A picture of the transformation that comes as the power, the resurrection power is applied to our lives as we accept the blood of Christ to cleanse us from sin. And then we walk as a body together. I've looked at that concept a bit in other messages as well. But in Colossians chapter 2, he says, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them that they are at Laodicea, and for many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, knit together, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. And that's what we endeavor to work out. We endeavor to experience. Teaching. Now, how, how does it say? We are to teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. We don't come to the communion table as individuals, apart in our own little realm of individual piety. We come as a body. We partake of the bread. We partake of the cup. We commit anew that atonement to our hearts. And I believe we also commit anew to discipleship together. 
as we partake of the bread and cup, we acknowledge our utter need for the atonement he made for us to be at peace, at one with God. And we again commit our lives to the life of broken surrender. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10 and 11 says, Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus might be made manifest, manifest in our mortal flesh. We put to death, we die daily, as Paul says, we put to death this flesh, that the life, the power of Christ may rest upon us. As we partake, we also look forward to his return. There it says in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, we do show the Lord's death till he come. We, we anew lay down our lives, accepting his death. And we do that as we look forward to his return when we won't need to do that anymore. Trust that the Lord will bless us as we commit our lives anew to him and surrender and commit ourselves to walk as a body in discipleship, being, being a light, being knit together, being faithful in bringing a bit of His kingdom. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.